You have to sign a contract to wrestle me or the Four Horsemen are not in Starcade. They're not going to be there Thanksgiving night. And without the Four Horsemen, there is no Starcade. All right, let's show you fans exactly why they're so upset. Let's go to it. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown and Tate in front of a live studio audience. Championship Wrestling, bringing you great wrestling action, sanctioned by the NWA, National Wrestling Alliance. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 155 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson. And today, well, with episode 55, two years ago, I did a WCW Monday Nitro, which would be the A show from October of 95. For episode 155, I decided to rewind nine years before that to its, I guess going to call Jim Crockett Promotions the father promotion of World Championship Wrestling. After all, it is the name of the program on the weekend, World Championship Wrestling. From November 1st, 1986, this one will be around Halloween, like the one that I did then as well. Not really much of a theme to it. I almost went with the week before, October 25th, but this one was more interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is not on the WWE Network. If you go through the 1986 World Championship Wrestling episodes, there's a handful, maybe four to six of them, are missing through the course of the year. Not entirely sure why that is. It's kind of head-scratching, although there are elements of this show that are very different from the usual World Championship Wrestling program. And you got similar stuff between this show and the previous show anyway. They're on the road to Starcade 86, the fourth of that super show, splitting time between Greensboro and Atlanta. And also, this one has a Midnight Express match on it, so that's always a nice little tiebreaker to have. And they're facing the Mulkies. I mean, how could you really go wrong with that? But before I get into it all, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greensmountain at gmail.com. Facebook.com slash greetings from Allentown. Give me a follow on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. That is at GF Allentown Pod. And I hope you've been enjoying the long, long thread that I've been doing. I don't know when this show drops, what number I'll be up to. But as I tape this, I'm up through the first 35 episodes of screenshots that I've used for the upload to <laughs> SoundCloud. And it's been nice remembering why exactly I chose certain things. I chose a Bobby Heenan picture because it reminded me of Lloyd Bridges leaning up against the desk in Airplane where he had the similar thing behind him in the exact same pose. So I don't know. It's a fun thing and <laughs> I have those damn pictures anyway. And you may be listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Do check out the other great shows on Pro Wrestling Only. I should mention Boom Goes the Dynamite which drops right before this show on late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, one of the two, looking at AEW's Dynamite show. 
You have Bigfoot Pro Wrestling Podcast, looking at independent pro wrestling from the Pacific Northwest. Days of Thunder, looking at WCW Thunder. They're in 1998 right now. And, of course, the other great shows that are a little bit more sporadic over, you know, you'll, you'll see them every so often, like your Pro Wrestling Super Show and the rest. So I, I had mentioned last week that I was going to a chaotic wrestling show, and I was very, very excited about it because Brian Pillman Jr. was going to be on the show, and I, I was very anxious to actually see him wrestle for the first time and to perhaps meet him at the merch table. But there, there was a little problem before going to the show, and I'm not going to slam chaotic wrestling for anything because I, I, I've enjoyed every single one of their shows that I went to, but they nearly sent me into a moment of panic where I'm wrapping up work in the office at about 5.20 on Friday afternoon, and I still had a few things left, maybe a few loose ends to tie up, and I get a text from Keithy, who's going to join me at the show, and we we're going to meet at a brewery in Hudson, Mass., which is where the show is taking place. He said, what time does this start anyway? And I was going to reply back with, oh, it starts at 8, because all chaotic shows start at 8. And I thought, maybe I should check, because I don't know. This is a different venue. There was one previous show there that I didn't go to in December. So let's uh, let's see. Oh, it says 7 o'clock. Oh, crap. So I had to drop everything, lock up the office, get out of there, because it's an awkward 38-minute drive through, like, the main streets and back roads of Sudbury, Massachusetts, to, to get to Hudson from where I'm coming from. And eventually, Keithy, he's coming from Watertown, town made famous uh, seven years ago in that Mark Wahlberg movie that, uh, never mind, I don't want to get into all that. So he's going to take him a while to drive out there, and we're thinking, oh, shoot, the show's going to start at 7, so we have to cancel going to the brewery, and I, I, I still rush to the brewery because <laughs> I had ordered a sub from the place next door already, and damn it, I wasn't going to like not pick that up because I had already paid for it. So I took the sub in, wolfed it down, had myself a beer, drove over. We actually pulled in at the exact same time, and when we got there, we had to wait in the lobby, and I thought, what the hell's going on here? And then I realized, oh, yeah, it, it was... The show is still starting at 8, but it said 7 on the website. So <laughs> it kind of reminded me of WCW in some ways. There's that bunkhouse stampede in 88 where the pay-per-view providers were given one time, the people were given, the ticket holders were given another time, and then it actually started at a third time. <laughs> it's kind of reminded me of that. So I did see Brian Pillman Jr. wrestle against Mike Verna, and I did not actually get to meet him. His match was right before intermission, but... It was so crowded up around his merch table. And also, I, I I am pretty sure that I cut like seven people in line over there because it's, you know, it's so chaotic to coin a phrase because there's, there's so many people in a tight space. And we are not the most slender people at the chaotic shows. I, I can say that as well, no matter how much weight I might have lost. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go back to my seat and uh, talk to Keithy because he was over there. And I'm like, uh, I'm like, yeah, yeah, the line was too long. He's like, are you too chicken shit to actually meet Brian Pillman Jr.? I'm like, well, no, although I don't like to bother people because he, like, walked by us on his way to the merch table. He, like, wanted me to stop him. I'm like, no, he's got to go over there and sell his stuff, okay? Th th this is how he makes a living. He, he doesn't want to hear what I have to say. I mean, I'll go over there if, if I get a chance. Well, long story short, 
what happened was right as the intermission ended he was still over there and he was kind of over there by himself so keithy decides that he's just going to get up he goes over there and he gets me an autograph eight by ten made out to me so brian pillman jr autographed something to me and i never actually met him which uh, keithy though he he's such a dear friend I mean, he he did not have to do that. And then he also got me a Miller Lite as well, which was just wonderful. Just the tops. Pillman actually signed a Miller, and actually it was a Coors Light bottle of people in the front row because he had used that bottle. He had taken a swig of it and spit it in Furnace's face at one point in the match, which a pretty good uh, souvenir if you can get it. I mean, my, my Saturday night was a little weird, too, in that I went to a 40th birthday party in Somerville, Mass., where it's, like, impossible to park, and yet I drove there anyway. And I was the sober one driving people home. That is my, my wife and my best friend, because you know, I'm just not going to put my best friend in a $25 Uber on a Saturday night, taking him all the way back to Stoneham. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm a nice guy, I guess. But I'm not as nice as Keithy, so I guess it's something for me to really kind of aim for. Although Keithy said he doesn't like people at one point during the show. He says he hates people. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And then as the night goes along, he's holding court with the people to his left, who are also regulars at chaotic shows, and he knows them from before. And then the people to my right were had traveled up from Puerto Rico to see one of the guys that was on the card, and he was holding court with them at another point so keithy you don't hate people okay i i I just want to you know let's let's be let's be real about all that so this show i had not quite figured out what i was going to do with it when we were waiting for the doors to open he said well what show are you going to do i'm like i'm probably going to do wwf from 1982 well i'm going to put that one on hold i mean i'm definitely going to get to that one simply for the lengthy buddy rose vignette that takes place on that program and for mighty joe thunder as well but this show is it was a real last minute call where sunday morning i woke up and i was like what what am i what am i going to do i i really have to make up my mind and i was going through my queue that i've been compiling for the last three years and this show had been on there for a really long time and i'm spooked ever since they did this youtube purge a couple of weeks ago where my sources for wcw nwa are not quite what they what they once were because a couple of the accounts were where I would basically pull them from. There's not as many sources. I should probably go through and download anything that I might want to use, but I figure, okay, why don't I just get to this? It gives me another excuse to watch Starcade 86. Yes, it's a long show. I ended up picking and choosing which ones I was going to watch the other night. But this one, you know, November 1st, 86, so you're less than four weeks away. And it's striking to me how little of the card has actually come together at this point. Flair's opponent is not yet known, which this whole reason we're going to get into that pretty early on as the show starts. But Magnum TA's accident, that was kind of the cloud hanging over everything at this point because that had been less than three weeks before this on October 14th. And a lot of people have the impression, oh, he was going to face Ric Flair for the world title and he was going to win. That That's not the case. It was going to be, and they had actually said this on one of the shows, I think it was a worldwide a couple of weeks before, 
It was either going to be Ronnie Garvin or Dusty Rhodes. And it wasn't going to be Dusty Rhodes because they had done that main event two straight years at Starcade, and doing it a third straight year would have just been absolute overkill. You had Dusty win the title for three weeks or whatever it was during the Bash Tour in the summer. It's time to move on to somebody else. But Garvin and Flair, of course, that becomes a Starcade main event the following year. And Garvin actually ends up facing Big Bubba for, well, reasons that we'll get into on this show because somebody just became a more a hotter babyface than him. But the stupid Wikipedia for Starcade 86 actually says, oh, Magnum TA was going to face Ric Flair, going to defeat him for the title. And I'm not going to be all stuck up about it, but it's just plainly wrong watching the TV, which is why I do this show because just actually watching the stuff provides a lot of context that gets lost with these narratives that, that form and then kind of cement themselves over the years. So with Magnum out, you're losing one of your top baby faces. So what do you do? You have to create a new one, and you have to create one fast. So how do you do that? Well, you grab a heel that people want to cheer in some way. So you take a look at the heel side of the ledger. You're, you're Dusty Rhodes. You're executive producer Virgil Reynolds. And you're like, okay, who on that side could I possibly turn babyface that the crowd might cheer for as, I don't know, a redemption story of some kind and sure enough Nikita Koloff is plucked from that side and gets the most insane reaction that you're going to hear a little bit later on this show we we actually see how the turn happened which is pretty remarkable because of what Koloff was doing at the time of Magnum TA's accident and how quickly it all comes together and where it comes together as well that is kind of fascinating to me and the, the, the footage of it is just absolutely amazing but for your top storylines in crockett in 1986 is maybe the best year for jim crockett promotions that there ever was you got dusty and the horseman now that seems to you know go back about a year from this point the horseman in a very ill-timed angle right the first show after magnum's accident the show starts out, the Saturday show starts out with them chasing down J- Dusty Rhodes in a car and beating him up in the parking lot of like the JCP officers or whatever the hell it was. Just kind of ill-timed because you have this other guy who just had a car accident and it, doing an angle with a car, probably not the greatest timing on that. Midnight Express and the Road Warriors, they're leading up to the scaffold match at starcade and the midnights had injured animal thought oh we had put this guy out for good and it's you know the normal babyface comeback and that sort of thing we actually see the road warriors in kind of a workout video because remember this is the 1980s and the midnights as i mentioned have a match as well and of course paul jones and jimmy valiant but we don't really see them on this show it's kind of a disappointment considering one of my favorite things i've ever done on Greece, Valentown is Jimmy Valiant getting his hair cut by Pez Watley. And that's number 42 in the archives. Do go back and check that out. I think I've used that in a best of twice. Like, that that's how much I actually love. I'll just keep rerunning that material about the Manchurian Candidate. So JCP is still red hot at this point. And it's for that reason that I really question why they didn't try to do a pay-per-view with Starcade 86 because once WrestleMania 3 rolls around and the huge success that that was and yeah there was no way that they knew that they were going to get locked out but 
they should have made their move here because they were hot and they they had Ted Turner in their corner because they're airing on their net on his network for the last year so they could have maybe leveraged that relationship who knows if Turner just didn't have that kind of relationship with cable companies at that point because TNT doesn't exist Cartoon Network the whole shebang so with all this in mind why don't we just get right to it it's World Championship Wrestling for November 1st 1986 high drive into deep right taking a break the last few episodes from the current event stuff like what was going on in the world when this show was airing i'd be remiss if i didn't talk about the 1986 world series again because game seven the red sox get a break and it rains on the sunday and then they play it on monday so they get to start bruce hurst he's shutting the mets out through five innings and then it just completely falls apart on them Back in those days, they didn't actually use their best starting pitchers in relief. Instead, instead of using Roger Clemens on one day's rest, I don't care if he had a blister, he's still better than Al Nipper. They bring in Nipper, and he gives up a home run to Daryl Strawberry. Now, the story that I love behind that home run that you just heard is Strawberry took approximately 42 minutes to round the bases, and Ray Knight, his teammate, is basically giving him a lecture at home plate, not because he thought he was going to get thrown at because it was seven the seventh game of the world series it's like hey could you not be a dick here he had been sat strawberry in game six as part of a double switch so he was mad at davy johnson the manager but the the postscript to the story is al nipper stewed about this all off season and when they play when the red sox played the mets in spring training the next year Al Nipper threw at Daryl Strawberry, starting a brawl in a spring training game. And God, I wish video of that existed because there's been Saturday nights that I've sat around and just watched 1986 Mets, Mets going brawls because there's actually enough of it where it's like the length of the Irishman. You could sit there for three and a half hours and just watch 1986 Mets brawls. But it also be good 1986 Jim Crockett promotions. But this is, as I said in the intro, very strange top of the show because the graphic doesn't call it world championship wrestling it just calls it championship wrestling like it's the wwf's old show prior to september of that year but also when they go to our hosts tony Schiavone and david crockett they're not at techwood studios like they would be for the saturday show they're in front of the burgundy background that you would see on worldwide, which I know because it's the same background that Jimmy Valiant and Pez Watley had their thing. It's just really strange. Championship Wrestling, bringing you great wrestling action, sanctioned by the NWA, National Wrestling Alliance. This is all ultimately meaningless, but I love to know this sort of stuff. Like with Superstars the previous week, I theorized that the Ultimate Warrior had to be pulled from the intro, which is why they couldn't run it for a few weeks. Like 82, WWF runs Gemini Dream by Moody Blues randomly as the theme for championship wrestling when it was the theme for all-star wrestling instead of playing the Dixie Dregs. And I don't know. Maybe this only fascinates me, but I don't know why stuff like this is done. So Tony and David, as I said, are our hosts. And Tony says he's got great news. Doesn't go into what that is at this point. But, hey, you know, it's a long program, and we'll we'll save it for later. Maybe we'll hear it. Maybe he'll just forget about it. He'll get all tuckered out. 
But we got Ronnie Garvin there. And as I said, either he or Dusty is to face Ric Flair. Now, Dusty, of course, the El Jefe, the booker of the promotion, and television champion, he eventually faces Tully Blanchard, and we're going to hear from Tully a little bit later. But Garvin is the Mid-Atlantic champion, and it's kind of the last vestiges of that title, because once they assume full control over the NWA world title, there's really not much of a need for there to be the lesser promotional title Back in the day, when you had the NWA traveling champion and he would go to all these places, you would need a territory champion to be that person kind of holding up his end like in the, in the local territory. So you'd have your Central States champion. You'd have your PNW champion. But And that's kind of what the... I think it was commonly known as the national title, but he's referred to here as the Mid-Atlantic champion. And it's kind of funny to think, with Starcade coming up, he's the champion of the territory that he seems to be not sure if he's going to be on Starcade. I hope so, because I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't want to miss Starcade for anything in the world. The greatest wrestling event in the whole entire world, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm going to tell you, I'm very proud to be the Mid-Atlantic Everywhere Champion. But I've still got on my mind the World's Everywhere title. So, Ric Flair, I hope I get you for Starcade. I'm going to try my best. You know, I'm in the best condition I've ever been. I've been training hard. I feel good. I feel like a champion. And I think I could become the World's Everywhere Champion at any given time. And like I said, it don't matter who it is, who I'm going to wrestle. But I want to be on Starcade. That's something... I don't want to miss, and I don't want anybody in the whole country to miss it, because believe me, it's the greatest wrestling event, sporting event, bar none. I don't know, Ronnie, is it really bigger and better than the 1986 World Series? I mean, maybe that's my own personal biases creeping into it. He wants to become world champion. I'd say maybe treat it like a pregnancy. You know, you're going to need a little bit of time to be trying, wink, wink. (laughs) Give it about a month and then take it nine months from that point, and bam, you'll win the world title in Detroit. Now, this was taped in Greenwood, South Carolina on October 21st, and I only know this because clearly it's not Techwood Studio. We've established this, but it was apparently a mishmash of stuff taped for other shows. It's really strange, like, why they were not in Techwood for just this one week because they were the week before for a very abbreviated show that runs 33 minutes on the network and they're back there like normal the following week on the 8th so who knows really i might be the only person who cares is brad armstrong is out for our first match and he he's actually the one who took the magnum ta role in the feud with jimmy garvin that is who magnum was feuding with and that was going to lead eventually to a starcade match they're also the matchup on house shows brad armstrong is the regular substitute in those bouts and it's labeled as World Championship Wrestling from November 1st. So as I was watching this video, I became nervous because this is also apparently on the October 25th, 86 edition of Worldwide, which makes sense given the backgrounds of the thing that we saw earlier. Anyway, his opponent is Gary Royal, who misses a crossbody kind of coming back off the second turnbuckle. So Brad goes up to the top rope, hits a missile dropkick, and that scores a three-count. And if you need somebody to fill in in a situation, you could do a lot worse than Brad Armstrong in a pinch. 
So I can obviously see why they turned to him. Eventually, he gets an angle with the horseman in January of 87, where Ric Flair, for some reason, is wearing a Lakers jacket, probably because Dusty liked the Celtics. So Ric Flair just beats him up wearing a Lakers jacket, which has always kind of been funny to me. So a very quick match in this one. This almost feels like a 1988 JCP show. As we go to David Crockett, who has a very strange message for Magnum. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, as we all know, the whole world knows that Magnum T.A. was injured in a car wreck. First of all, Magnum, we sent all our love to you. Keep up the good work. I know David Crockett has his foibles, and I'm not going to rip him for all that, but who the hell says when you got a guy who's laying paralyzed at a hospital, says, keep up the good work. Like, they feel, it feels like they were underselling his injuries all along. And I'm not talking about how they kept Magnum in the intro to shows into 1987, which is a little weird considering he would have been injured two and a half, three months before the start of the year. So they have his mother there to kind of be the spokesperson because apparently a lot of girls had gone to the hospital and people had been calling the hospital as well, which is why part of the reason why they have to say medical facility and you're not going to say specific hospital names for that so they're not overrun with that sort of stuff. So she's along just to kind of, you know, say, you know, relay the message of everything that's going on. He's doing well and he's making a little progress each day. And he asked me to express to his fans and friends his deepest appreciation for the love and concern you have shown him since his accident. I personally can never thank you enough for the prayers, cards, flowers and cards. They've made so much difference to Magnum and they've helped to get his family through the most difficult time of our lives. Keep up the good work. Car accident, horrible tragedy. He's paralyzed from the waist down. Keep up the good work. <laughs> I still can't get past that. As I put the address on the screen where you can send your cards and letters to Magnum to cheer him up. But at least I'll give Jim Crockett Promotions credit for this. They didn't turn it into a mailing list for Christmas. <laughs> They're not quite as low as Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation using that as a catalog thing right before Christmas, although it would have been tight considering we're at the beginning of November. But hey, you could have turned it around and, you know, didn't really have too much in the way of merch here in late 1986. And they go to commercial as Tony Schiavone is reading some of the upcoming house shows. I'll, I'll go into that more a little bit later with one particular house show and add... And yes, there are commercials on this video for Solo Flex, which just feels something like <laughs> definitely out of the 1980s. I mean, maybe bled into the 90s a little bit. People, I think, got a little bit more sophisticated with their workout. Second ad's a little bit more my speed because it's for an LP collection of music. Not Time Life, it's something else, but it's Keep On Rockin'. Not including shipping and handling, the price on this is $19.95 for four LPs or three cassettes. And the three best songs that they probably played for, or at least my favorites, are Love the One You're With by Stephen Stills. Often attributed to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, but it's actually just Stephen Stills. Eight Miles High from Stills' bandmate in Crosby, Stills, and Nash, 
David Crosby and the Birds and Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. But the fake DJ from that commercial is so funny, especially if you've watched the television program Arrested Development. And I'm talking like the 2003 to 2006 version and maybe not as much the Netflix one that I don't know as well because I only watched season four once. I think I watched one episode of season five. Anyway, the dude looks like Tobias Funke dressed up as like a 1971 DJ. <laughs> I got to take a screenshot of that because it is just priceless. So we go back to the wrestling program that is in fact what i cover on this podcast now jj dillon and tully blanchard are there and they're both wearing sunglasses indoors which rod trongard should be suing for gimmick infringement here although rod wore those sunglasses because his eyes they were not very attractive looking at for the best that he did not wear sunglasses but what i found interesting is four horsemen have existed for about a year at this point but the little Chiron at the bottom of the screen says Tully Blanchard Enterprises. And I'm like, oh, we're still doing that? Is is that like an ongoing concern in AEW? Or like Tully Blanchard is paired with Shitney Spears? I mean, Sean Spears? Like, why do they do that pairing? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I need to actually watch AEW not on mute to actually pick up some of the storylines. But uh, I'm kind of amused by at least one element of what Tully and JJ have to say. But first of all, I understand your office has had many, many phone calls, cards, letters. How? What happened to Dusty Rhodes got on the air? Well, I will tell you, because you and your brother took our hard-earned money and took that cash and sold that TV time. So people, shut up and put up, okay? What happens is, Dusty Rhodes, we try to put you out of Starcade, out of the cage match, so you'd lose. And it backfired. We took you just a little bit short. But when you took that cast in the ring and did this to James A. Dillon, cameraman, get up here close. Look what Dusty Rhodes did with that cast in that match to James J. Dillon. And I tell you what, look around here, David Crockett. Are you proud? Are you proud of what the American Dream did? Huh? It makes me sick. You know, David Crockett, I always regarded myself as somewhat of a handsome man. <laughs> Who knew J.J. Dillon was that wry and funny? You'd think that if he had been like that on his podcast a couple of years ago, it would have lasted longer than it did. Yeah, J.J. Dillon, I just picture him on like the cover of Tiger Beat. He's just a teen idol. He's a very handsome man, Dick. <laughs> when he takes off his glasses, it's actually the screen cap for the YouTube video, and it both eyes are blackened. And it's really not the best screenshot you could have done to like make people watch this. Although it kind of got me, and I'm like, how did? Why does JJ Dillon look like he hasn't slept in seven days? Like, what the hell is wrong with him? But okay, I cut off the handsome man. I'll let him speak. And now, because of the cast at the hands of Dusty Rhodes, I'm going to have to be reminded every day for the rest of my life for the horrible scars that I'm going to have to carry. But now the four horsemen have decided that we're going to have to deal with Dusty Rhodes and Starcade, and I have presented a contract to Jim Crockett Jr., president of Jim Crockett Promotions. For a world television title match at Starcade 86 between the American Dream Dusty Rhodes and Tully Blanchard. Now to this date and to this time, I have yet to hear a response. So I'm going to make my position crystal clear. If the contract is not signed, in a show of unity among the four horsemen, we as a unit are prepared to back out of Starcade 86. Yes, the greatest tag team of all time, Holy and Arn Anderson, the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, are prepared to back out of Starcade 86. The man that is Starcade 86. 
I'm talking about the world heavyweight champion, Nature Boy Ric Flair. He's prepared to back out, as is Mr. Blanchard. The thing is, J.J. Dusty Rhodes, you have to sign a contract. You have to sign a contract to wrestle me, or the Four Horsemen are not in Starcade. They're not going to be there Thanksgiving night, and without the Four Horsemen, there is no Starcade! You have to walk out! It's a pretty neat way to build intrigue, because you get the Four Horsemen now all threatening as a unit to refuse to be part of this big show for the promotion unless Dusty Rhodes signs for a specific match, which would end up being the first blood match against Tully for the television title. So kind of interesting, like, yes, we're going to have Starcade without Ric Flair. So you kind of got the promotion by the balls by those guys banding together. By the way, I do have the kayfabe hat on, but I did not buckle the chin strap. I'm just keeping it 100% loose. Kind of like Malcolm Butler at Super Bowl Forty Nine. You know he made that interception and his chin strap wasn't even buckled properly? It like slid down over his eyes. It's just something that I discovered recently. And speaking on the topic of intrigue with Jim Crockett Promotions and the World Wrestling Federation. Yes, it's probably more famous Starcade 87 and the battle with Survivor Series and they're running on the same day. But that was definitely not the first time they had a war on the same day. In fact, October 18th, 1986, a very fascinating day in the history of professional wrestling with those two companies going against each other because they both ran Philadelphia. The WWF was at the Spectrum and JCP was running the Philadelphia Civic Center where they drew 7,000, which I think is a capacity crowd there. So I got to read what the two cards are and you could decide for yourself which one you would rather go to. The Midnight Express defeated Tim Horner and Don Cronodal. I'm surprised Cronodal was even there in 1986. NWA U.S. champion Nikita Koloff, Ivan Koloff, and Crusher Khrushchev, the latter two were actually U.S. tag team champions, defeated Jimmy Valiant, Dick Murdoch, and Wahoo McDaniel. What a team that is when Valiant was pinned. Very interesting that you got Nikita on the card here, given what happens a little bit later. Brad Armstrong, subbing for Magnum TA, as I had said earlier, defeated Jimmy Garvin by DQ. Manny Fernandez pinned Hector Guerrero. NWA Tag Team Champions, the Rock and Roll Express, defeated Ole and Arn Anderson via disqualification. Television Champion Dusty Rhodes pinned J.J. Dillon. Actually, going to get into that in just a second because we do get the footage of it. Now, for the WWF show running at the Spectrum, there's a lot of lower quality matches on this one. Corporal Kirschner pinned Tiger Chung Lee in 12.07. I don't mean that one because Tiger Chung Lee is friggin' awesome. Pedro Morales pinned Steve Lombardi in 6.11. Billy Jack Haynes and Hercules went to a 20-minute draw. Coco Beware pinned the Red Demon who is Bob Bradley under a mask, who is subbing for Jimmy Jack Funk at 535 with a missile dropkick. And this match freaking blows my mind. Intercontinental champion Macho Man Randy Savage defeated the Honky Tonk Man via countout at 704. It's a babyface Honky Tonk Man against a heel Randy Savage. What a world. Should see if that Philly show is on the network or if I could find it somewhere. Kamala pinned Lenny Poffo with a splash at 335 in the main event. Hulk Hogan defeated Paul Orndorff by countout at 1623. They did one of those deals where Hogan loses the title if he is, if he is disqualified during the match. So I left off what the main event was at the Philadelphia Civic Center. And out of it, you're kind of surprised to see Nikita Koloff teaming with Ivan and Crusher Khrushchev because 
he has one of the all-time babyface turns because, as I said, it's so interesting how they did it, how quickly it all came together and how they presented it on television. He's a heel earlier in the evening, and then he turns a little bit later on. Who does he think he is? China in, like, a 1999 pay-per-view or whatever? But there's absolutely no doubt that he accompanies Dusty Rhodes to the ring for the cage match against J.J. Dillon, who he's in the cage with Ole Anderson, and Dusty walks in there by himself. And uh, Koloff is a little bit hesitant at first. He's kind of looking around like you know, me at a party where I don't really know anybody. I'm like, all right, what, what am I supposed to do? Do I just charge right in, or how is this going to go? And I just you have the image in your head because Ole Anderson had jumped Dusty Rhodes years ago. Dusty had been attacked by the horseman in a cage the year before in the Omni. That's where they broke his leg. And and Nikita is there, and he comes up from behind, but instead of going at Dusty, who he had just accompanied, he goes right at Ole Anderson. But the crowd reaction to all of this is just phenomenal. It's just audio of a crowd, but it gives you goosebumps. It's a good thing that there's no play-by-play, so you could hear the crowd and you could just take in that reaction. So what Nikita does is he basically stomps a mud hole in Ole, puts him outside the cage, and just starts throwing kicks, keeping Ole away as Dusty is wailing on JJ. And Dusty's got a cast on because they had done that angle in the parking lot earlier that day on World Championship Wrestling. So now J.J.'s getting his ass beat because that's pretty much his role in the Horseman when he is actually in the ring. Nikita comes back over and holds him up, and Dusty just kind of hits him across the head with the cast. And then as J.J.'s laying there, Dusty lays in a few more shots before finally getting the pinfall. As Flair walks down to ringside as well to check out the proceedings. Tully Blanchard was there, and they're all kind of stunned. And Flair is, like, pointing the finger at Nikita, like, oh, I can't believe it. But they did that thing that I love, where you can only hear a little bit of what Flair is saying because the crowd's so loud and Flair isn't mic'd. So when all else fails, just bleep the guy and we'll use our imagination. telling you bleeping stuff like that always works because it's funny it just leaves it to the imagination what i'm saying like i could just throw a few in here like if i was talking about a that i saw where this woman was getting and you know there was everywhere and it was just an absolute like the they couldn't clean it all up I mean, what did I just say? Nobody will ever know. 
I run a clean show here, and I intend to keep it that way. So back to Dusty and Nikita. You might be wondering, okay, how did these two guys come together? Like the Eddie Gilbert thing from a few weeks ago. What are the nature of these talks where he got Steve Boat to come in on his behalf? How did Dusty Rhodes get Nikita Koloff to be his teammate, considering that Nikita had just come off this very emotional feud against Magnum T.A.? Two very important issues uh, at hand right now. Dusty Rhodes and McAbee. One is my closest friend in life is Magnum T.A. and the accident that he suffered. The last two weeks have been very difficult for Dusty Rhodes and McAbee. Because Magnum T.A. and Dusty Rhodes made their own rules. We love fast cars and fast times and that's the way we lived on the end of that lightning bolt that crashes through this vast earth of ours. That's the way we're going to continue to live. And after it happened, Nikita Koloff called me on the phone and we talked for hours. And we met and talked for more hours. I don't believe everything that Nikita Koloff believes in and he doesn't believe everything that I do. But living in this country gives you that right to be free, to have freedom of speech, to have freedom of choice, to have freedom to do and be what you want to be. I'm not sure if this is a wrestling promo or a presidential campaign stump speech. Dusty Rhodes is going to run on the Libertarian ticket in 1988. By the way, you know who was the Libertarian candidate for president in 1988 in the general election? Ron Paul. You may have actually heard of him in Republican politics in this century anyway, running for president on a couple of occasions. I know he raised a good lapdog of a child as well. But wait, Dusty Rhodes didn't become president. We all know he didn't become president of the United States until the year 2000, as told to us by the new breed who traveled back from 2002, but didn't mention anything about 9-11. So I guess they dropped the ball on that. So Dusty, he doesn't see eye to eye with Nikita. So you're going to explain it like, okay, it's not like we just became pals overnight. He knows that, you know, they're not going to agree. The American and the guy from the Soviet Union. So let's hear from our suddenly more coherent Soviet friend, Nikita Koloff. Now, I know I've bagged on him a lot in the past. How he You know, where you could play it backwards and it sounds exactly the same as it does if you just played it in order. But this is a big promo here. This is Nikita coming off one of the most famous babyface turns in pro wrestling history. You know, I am proud Russian, and I am superior athlete. And I go to Japan and defeat many, many opponents. Well, last week I come back to America, and I hear about Magnum TA. And I call you, Dusty. I call you because many times I meet Magnum TA in the ring, and many times we had a hard fight. And I learned to respect him. Well, now, Nakita has called. Many times, Megan T.A. say for him, he has no rule. And many times, Nakita say for me, there is no law. Kremlin, Uncle Ivan, nobody tells Nakita what to do. And now, you have to remember, I, Nakita Koloff, am greatest Russian athlete to ever walk this earth. 
It's a mutual respect thing born out of that feud that Nikita and Magnum had with the best of seven series for the U.S. title. And that makes a lot of sense. What I got hung up on was the, oh, I was in Japan beating up people. And I thought, oh, well, that's a bunch of BS. He's just saying that he was away and, you know, the whatever. Well, in fact, the the Koloffs and the Russians, they would be sent to other territories in kind of the reverse Andre the Giant role that he used to play in the earlier in the 80s and in the 70s, where they would come in and help the local heels. Just think Eddie Gilbert in the UWF episode I covered back, episode 21. Check that out, the archives, when they put the flag on the cowboy. They also made their way up to Portland Wrestling at one point. So they would get around. And yes, Nikita Koloff was working All Japan Pro Wrestling. And I'm not making a joke here for once. He actually was working All Japan. He was not just doing back suplexes and letting them know that he'd be willing to come in if they asked. He was working a tour over there in something called the All Japan Pro Wrestling Giant Series. I never know if those cage match things are actually like in line with what they're actually called or if it's just made up. So on the day of the accident, when Magnum has the accident, he's working tag matches over there with Crusher Khrushchev. And on the 14th, that gets cut off. And I would presume that he was called home like, yeah, Nikita, you got to come back here. So after the ninth show of that tour for All Japan, he comes back, and the tour ran longer than that because I checked results for other guys just to see how far out it went. Wow, I mean, it is not an orthodox move in the year 1985 to be turning a Soviet heel babyface, which is what makes it so brilliant. Except when you think of Rocky IV just the year before, the Soviet audience turned Rocky babyface to <laughs> to the in the fights in Russia, and they turn on Drago like halfway through. It's a really bizarre double turn, even more so than the Powers of Pain and Demolition at Survivor Series '88. And I'm not just saying that to bring up the 1988 Survivor Series. I just have to take my hat off to Dusty Rhodes because what a great call under duress to. Make Nikita Koloff a babyface and picking the right guy from out of all the heels that he could have picked. That's probably the best guy that he could have done because here is this guy who he can just kind of be the same character as a babyface, just this badass ass kick, kick. I almost call him an ass kisser. I mean, an ass kicker. You know what I mean? And now wrestling changes forever in a way. Today, Rasputin, the Mad Russian? Yes, but I'm afraid the forces of history have changed wrestling, perhaps forever. Lisa Simpson had it figured out, but that was the fall of 1990, I think it was. So that's four years later after Dusty has Nikita turn babyface. That's even after Nikolai Volkov in the WWF. And Perestroika and Glasnost. And <laughs> I was saying the Steve Allen song from WrestleMania 6. But point is, pretty ballsy move, and it worked unbelievably well now it's not like nikita stayed as this over baby face for maybe even more than a year uh, to me it peters out pretty much at Starcade 87 when he unifies the tv belts 
because after after that point it's really just kind of a decline we get flat top nikita yeah i know he went off steroids for a while and his wife got sick as well in 89 which is why you didn't really see him in nwa wcw for a while but for this one moment it, it was just magic and you just listen to that crowd and it's one of those holy crap moments and that's why i would have rather gone to the jcp show in philly that night instead of the wwf this is the sound that earned them 16 gold records Clifford's, Stu Cook, Tom Fogarty, and John Fogarty. Credence, Clearwater Revival. I'm a huge fan of CCR. I've seen John Fogarty in concert on a couple of different occasions. But the fact is that CCR is kind of like the late 2000s Cleveland Cavaliers of rock bands. And what I mean by that is Fogarty is like LeBron, John Fogarty. And the surrounding cast, like, I don't remember anybody from, like, the 2008 Cavaliers, other than maybe it was Zabrilis Elgoskis there at that point. I, I, I don't know. I don't remember. Like, I don't, there was the guy who, Delonte West, who may have screwed around with LeBron's mom. I, I don't know. That's basically Stu Cook, Doug Clifford, and Tom Fogarty. Yeah, Tom Fogarty, I think, wrote Walk on the Water. Other than that, what did he write? Really nothing. But the fact is, John Fogarty was kind of a dick where, oh, I write all the songs. He took control over everything. That's why, like, Proud Mary, you don't hear it like the way the Tina Turner version is. Fogarty consciously chose it to do the CCR version that way. And on their last album, Mardi Gras, which is a, Mardi Gras, which is a, a pretty lousy album, Tom Fogarty had left. And John Fogarty said, all right, you hotshots, you're going to have to write three songs each, and I'll write three songs. And suffice to say, the Stu Cook and Doug Clifford songs were not as good because they were not equipped to be writing songs on an album. So anyway, that's my soliloquy about CCR. They're kind of like the Cleveland Cavaliers in some ways. But I still love me some John Fogarty and some serious battles with fantasy records over the years. And then hilariously, he signs with them again in 2007 when they had kind of changed ownership by that point. Anyway, I like the ads so far on this show. They're really speaking to me. And there's a second commercial for Super Football Saturday. TBS televising college football back when it was very different and there were independent teams and Alabama oh wait a minute one of these is an Alabama game hey super football Saturday's gonna get you I know eighth ranked Alabama and aerial dynamo Mike Shula collide with Mississippi State and hotshot quarterback Don Smith then on Super Football Saturday night, Lou Holtz and Never Say Die Notre Dame challenge the special forces of Navy. The Fighting Irish battle the midshipmen in this annual college football classic. Super Football Saturday at 12.30 and 7 p.m. Eastern on the Superstation today. 
about 15 years later, Mike Shula would become the head coach at Alabama. Not particularly successful, especially contrasted with his successor in that role, Nick Saban, who's won a crap load of national titles. They did beat Mississippi State 38-3 to on that day. No thanks to anything Mike Shula did, but running back Bobby Humphrey, 30 carries, 284 yards on the ground and three touchdowns. I feel like in college football, a lot of guys ran for like astronomical rushing numbers in the 80s. I know Barry Sanders ran for like almost 3,000 yards the year that he won the Heisman Trophy. And that Notre Dame-Navy game, an annual tradition, Notre Dame first year under new coach Lou Holtz. They beat Navy 33-14. to they, they had a long winning streak against Navy that lasted until I think Charlie Weiss was the coach of Notre Dame. That game took place in Baltimore. And the Heisman Trophy winner from the 87 season the next year, Tim Brown, seven catches, 184 yards, and a touchdown, including a 77-yarder. Quarterback for Notre Dame in that game, Steve Berline, who would go on to some success in the NFL with the Dallas Cowboys and the Los Angeles Raiders. I think it was Los Angeles at that point. Anyway, I can't keep track of it. All I know is that they weren't Las Vegas. So we go to a Tony in a review of the Midnight Express attacking the Road Warriors. And this is Road Warriors. Boy, my accent is really coming out. So Animal, the thought is, he's badly hurt. He's out of wrestling. All hope is lost. Oh, where have I seen this before? Oh, yeah, that's right. I've seen this in just about every territory done on multiple occasions. So you get the Road Warriors doing a video, like I said, about them lifting weights. The only thing that's interesting about it is they're lifting weights, well, to the song Iron Man. That's not really the interesting part, but they don't have their face paint on. I did not realize that they were ever presented on TV as the Road Warriors without face paint. But, you know, I guess uh, you might just end up sweating it off. And they have a message for Jim Cornette and his Midnight Express. And who better to actually deliver said message than the frontman of the legendary group Queen coming off a Live Aid performance for the ages in 1985. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, that's not Freddie Mercury? Okay, I guess that's somebody named Paul Ellering. Well, as you can see, the Legion of Doom hasn't been sitting back on their laurels. No, sir. We're ready for you, Jim Cornette. Thanksgiving Day. That's right, Cornette. Midnight Express, we get a big surprise. You ain't ever gonna forget, right, brother? Hey, the surprise is good for us and bad for you. (laughs) Oh, please, tell me a little bit more about this surprise, but... Please, make sure that you let Animal talk a little bit more. I feel like on Greetings from Allentown, he's on a, been on a bit of a roll with his promos of late, and I want to see if he can keep it up. Jimmy Cornette, you think you've single-handedly destroyed the Legion of Doom. You've done what nobody else has ever done before in professional wrestling. Well, I got news for you, Jimmy Cornette. We're here right now with guys that get up every morning and work for a living. They work for everything they've got, and when they get in there, they give it all that they've got. And that's just what we're going to do come Thanksgiving Day, right, Hawk? Hey, these construction workers are high in the scaffolds, working for everything they got, just like the warriors work for everything they got. Well, them construction workers high up in the scaffold are taking a chance at life and losing life every day by falling off. They're the closest ones to the sky. Right, animal. That's right. That's why we're calling this match a special match. That's right. We're calling this match 
the knights of the Skywalkers at Eden, Carnegie, and Cornet. You had me out of wrestling for a month. You know why we were out a month? Because we were working out Tony's heart. You see the fire under our butts that ain't ever been set before. And now, many of the Skywalkers, you're going down. Let's go get them. I'll climb this yeah. Jim Crockett Promotions definitely loved the scaffold match for whatever reason. Something that's really, really hard to do. I guess Chicky Star against Invader 3 was a good scaffold match. And that was earlier in 86. I don't know if that influenced this. Sweet Brown Sugar, who you probably know best, is Coco Ware against Bill Dundee in Memphis. Also a scaffold match. It's a very difficult thing to kind of pull off. And there's a lot of things that could go wrong. Just ask Jim Cornette if you can find him in a calm moment. And then after 86, they do it again at Starcade the next year with the Midnight Express again against the Rock and Roll Express. It's like, are you just doing this to like make Jim Cornette really upset and to just you know put him on a rant? Isn't that Brian Last's job these days? I don't know. It just seems like anybody could set him off. But a scaffold match just seems really, really difficult to do. However, in the case of Starkid 86, it was a thing you could put on the VHS tape and, you know, have a cute little tagline, Night of the Skywalkers. Even if the match itself wasn't all that great, I still give them credit for at least trying, for, for making it work okay. And apparently, big ups to Animal. To, I mean, to well, Animal was the guy that's selling an injury, but apparently Hawk might have had a broken leg working a scaffold match. That's pretty badass. I don't know if it was necessarily broken because when I watched it the other day, I was kind of walking, you know, he, him moving around. He was moving around pretty good, but then I realized he probably hopped up on so many painkillers that you know, who, who knows? Who knows if he could even feel a thing? So back in the control center, Jim Crockett is there for some reason alongside Tony Schiavone. And I'm wondering, I don't remember in the WWF Jack Tunney ever showing up next to Mean Gene Oakland or Sean Mooney or whoever in Edit One or whatever the hell they called it. I guess maybe Jim Crockett wants to be on TV because he thinks it'll lend some gravitas to the proceedings. Who knows? We have an update on the Jimmy Valiant-Paul Jones match. Manny Fernandez, the Raging Bull, will be at ringside, but he's going to be in a cage... 30 feet above the ring. Some people call this cage Betty Lou. Also, James J. Dillon has presented a contract for a world television title match, Tully Blanchard against Dusty Rhodes. The NWA cannot and will not sanction this match because it's a first blood match. But because of what's gone on between Tully Blanchard and Dusty Rhodes, I will present this contract to Dusty for him to make that decision. For Christ's sakes, who the hell are these people like, oh, we're not going to sanction it because it's a first blood match? Did you ever watch Starcade 85? Like, 85% of the people on that show are bleeding. <laughs> I think that's the one where Abdullah pulls out a fork in literally the first seven seconds of a match against Manny Fernandez and just stabs him with it and he starts bleeding from the forehead. Like, oh, but we can't sanction this first blood match. It's just too violent and too unbecoming. It's all blood. That's that's what the NWA is. It's all about taking a razor blade out of your wristband or having it handed to you by the official or some kind of ringside attendant and then taking the blade that you have properly managed and taken care of, however you might like. You might cut off a piece of the end of it. And then what you're going to do is you're going to move it up 
surreptitiously to your forehead and slice a piece of skin. And you're going to do that because there's a quota for the number of people who need to bleed on Starcade, and it has to be over 80%. It's kind of like you're, when you're a consultant, you have billable hours utilization. They, they have like a, a blood utilization where this many people have to bleed or the pay-per-view is just going to be no good. This is Slick Rick here to tell you how to get the greatest wrestling video ever made. I'm talking about the very best versus the very best all on one hot video cassette. Woo! Check this out. Nine full matches. Never before seen on TV and never will be. All on a two-hour cassette. They're all here, including Baby Doll, who finally gets her hands on Jim Cornette. The Rock and Roll Express, the Road Warriors, the Russians, Magnum PA, Kelly and Garvin, and yours truly, Rick Flair, the world's heavyweight champion against Dusty Rhodes. Who won? Who lost? My lips are sealed. If you want to find out, get ready to order this great video cassette now. You could actually get that Bash 86 tape on Betamax. I figured it might be VHS only by the time you get to that point in the 80s. But no, apparently still going with Beta. I guess that lasted up through 1988 from what I saw. And it's, okay, how did, why did Beta end up losing despite having uh, what, I guess, a superior video quality? Well, basically, Sony, who controlled the Betamax, they controlled too much of it, wouldn't license out some of the technology, and it basically limited how they could do things. It, it's something that's taught in business schools. Now, speaking of products from the 1980s, we got Lee Press-On Nails. I, I feel like they were part of the promotional consideration for every single game show in the 80s that I saw, which is a hell of a lot of them, pretty much every one that aired on the USA Network during the afternoons. So we go to Ivan Koloff, and let's not forget Uncle Ivan's feelings over this Nikita thing. He's just kind of walked out on him, literally in the middle of the show. They team in a six-man, and then later he's walking out with Dusty Rhodes. And he's very despondent about it. So that's something you can kind of keep simmering while Nikita might be aiming at even higher things than just dealing with his old comrades. No question. I still can't believe what has happened. I'm confused. I am hurt inside. Ever since Nikita was little boy, I have trained him. I have taught him everything I know. I've been brought up like a father to him. And when he got in wrestling, I was like his coach. I used to sit with him and tell him how important it was to serve your country, to be for your country. Well, nephew Nikita, for what you have done now to the country, to our country, the country has disowned you. So we have disowned you also. You're not answering to the family now for what you have done, Crusher or myself. You are answering to the Kremlin because what you have done. And you know right well what you have done. You know what our mission was in this country here. And you have went and you have broken the rules. And talking about rules, before you kept coming out saying, for nephew Nikita, there is no rule. I always thought you were talking about wrestling rules. But now I understand what you were talking about. You were talking about Russian rules, Russian law, that you were disowning your own country, your own family. Well, nephew Nikita, you will never be forgotten for this. You will have to answer to the Kremlin. Well, I'm not saying that Ivan is wrong, but maybe Nikita is smarter than I ever gave him credit for because 
he he was reading the tea leaves of what was going on in the Soviet Union, how those leaders kept dying, and then they get the quote-unquote young, dynamic Gorbachev in 85, and he's going to pursue glasnost, which is a word meaning openness, and that, you know, basically promoting change. So maybe he felt that because of all that, it was time for him to make similar changes as what was going to be happening in the Soviet Union. Again, not saying Ivan Koloff is wrong here. It, both guys can be right in this case. Man, Ivan Koloff, he is so friggin' good. <laughs> I mean, anybody under the age of 40, and I know I'm like 40 and uh, like three quarters or something like that at this point. Holy crap, was Ivan Koloff like far and away the best Russian heel that there ever was like i grow up watching nikolai volkov in the wwf and it's like oh yeah yeah okay he's a 300 pound guy he was in decent shape in like 85 and then you know he got a little punch like that dude doesn't even hold a freaking candle to ivan koloff who by the way is a former wwf champion who beat bruno in the garden in 71 but we don't talk about it because there's this weird blacklist of Ivan Koloff that I've never quite understood because he worked for Vince Jr. in late 83 and then all of a sudden you just never hear from him ever again. It's just truly puzzling. So why don't I just go to the next match and something else that's going to be truly puzzling. It's Jimmy Garvin with Precious taking on Keith Patterson. This is another quick one, but my goodness, what is with Jimmy Garvin is getting a huge reaction from the female contingent in the crowd. Why is that? Because you got Precious there with it. Like, he's literally bringing his wife, girlfriend, valet, whatever you want to call her, around everywhere with him. And she's spraying fragrance because the fans don't smell good. That's, that's the whole gimmick with that. But uh, I did not realize that Jimmy Garvin had such a female following. And just watching him walk to the ring, definitely more than a dusting of Johnny B. Bad in that character. I think Dusty might have had that in mind, considering that the Jimmy Garvin character in 91 bears little resemblance to what's going on here. This one's much more Johnny B. Bad than what he would become in the later iterations of the Freebirds. So maybe Dusty just sort of thought of that and said, hey, maybe I'll apply it to this Mark Merrow guy. Also, uh, it's a little disconcerting because in some of the earlier episodes, I talked about the Jimmy Garvin Appreciation Society, which are, you know, the, the fans of the white trunks where he's not hiding anything that he's got. Well, Garvin is wearing, not only is he wearing long pants, it's like all sequins, which certainly a daring look. I don't think I could pull it off, but... It kind of ruins my bit about the Jimmy Garvin Appreciation Society if he's wearing long pants. Irish whip and a drop kick gets two for some reason, but that's not his finisher. So he's going to hit the brain buster on Keith Patterson. A pretty good looking brain buster, I must say, by Garvin, who, who would later adopt the DDT as you get more into that Freebirds thing. Just another example of how much cooler Jimmy Garvin was in the 80s and once once the third letter in the year a third number in the year gets to be a nine jimmy garvin just becomes very uncool at that point almost like michael hayes now that i think about it it's almost exactly in sync and we'll just go right into the next segment 
which is Jimmy Garvin's rival from earlier on in 1986, Wahoo McDaniel, singular. And his issue at this point is with Paul Jones. Not that he's hanging out with Jimmy Valiant, you know, chugging beers with him or anything like that. He's got issues with raging and ravishing. And that feud between Manny Fernandez and Wahoo McDaniel, that, that's one of my favorites because it actually did cross promotions. It did go into the AWA and probably somewhere else along the line. It feels like a Herb Abrams UWF kind of feud. I actually watched a, a Herb Abrams match the other day that John D'Amato sent me because it had Rusty Brooks in it. It was from 1991, and I thank him very much for that. Rick Rude also having issues with Wahoo. Now, that's the match you're going to get at Starcade is Wahoo and Rick Rude. I believe it was a strap match. That's actually one of the ones that I skipped over in my Starcade 86 viewing. So that show is four hours. I mean, I'm not saying that it feels as long as, uh, say, WrestleMania 4. All I know is that I'm conditioned to sit through WrestleMania 4. I'm not quite so conditioned to sit through Starcade 86. And that one announcer who does half the matches, who I have absolutely no friggin' idea who he is, because his name just didn't ring a bell. So Wahoo, he, he, his approach is a little bit less manic to dealing with Paul Jones than, say, Jimmy Valiant. Being a national veteran in the, in the National Football League for 10 years and wrestling for a number of years, you know, I've never asked anybody to help me. And, you know, things like now I'm getting my hands full because they're coming at me one and two at a time. But, you know, I'm the type of guy in the long run, I'll get Manny Fernandez by himself. I'll get Rick Rude by himself. And I want to tell you one thing. We better hope that I never get Paul Jones by right. I'm going to cut it off there because David Crockett actually refers to him as McDaniels, and you know how much that annoys me. The match at Starcade, Rick Rude and Wahoo McDaniel, and I talked about this several episodes ago where I think it was in reference to Harley Race against Haku, and maybe it was just I mentioned it on Twitter, where Harley Race versus Haku, like, what is, like, the combination of two guys in a singles match that you would least want to drunkenly rush the ring for like would you really want to get handled by harley and haku i mean even 1989 harley race i wouldn't want to deal with any of that wahoo mcdaniel and rick rude those are two guys i don't think i would want to be dealing with because wahoo he's one of those guys that there's like these legendary stories about him and things that he did on the road some of them are true some of them might be embellished but there's a certain legend to it with rick rude here's a man who i've heard the story told more than once where he would position his girlfriend at the time at a bar and leave her by herself and just wait for a guy to talk to her so that he could run over and beat the crap out of him just just for sport so, do you really want to mess with either of those guys? So, I, me, me, I'm not saying Rick Rude versus Wahoo is scarier than Haku versus Harley Race. I'm just saying it's in the conversation. The ups and downs of the stock market can create its share of headaches. Take Pat Ryan. I have a throbbing sensation, which I characterize as a desperate headache. I would like to have some aspirin now. What he took was extra-strength Tylenol caplets. Last year, hospitals dispensed Tylenol 10 times more than the next four brands combined. I feel superb, and my headache is gone. And that's a nice feeling to have. If Tylenol worked for Pat Ryan, and it's the pain reliever hospitals use most, 
Shouldn't you use Tylenol, too? I've learned a little bit over the last couple of months about the differences between Advil and Aleve and Tylenol. And I've never been a big Tylenol guy. Maybe that was because I grew up in the 80s and there was that thing in the early 80s where some dude tampered with the Tylenol bottle. I know it could have happened to any of them. But apparently the reason why hospitals prescribe Tylenol rather than other pain relievers has nothing to do with quality and more to do with the active ingredient in Tylenol, acetaminophen, uh, I hope I'm saying that correctly, it has fewer side effects than ibuprofen. That's the only reason. I've been taking a leave more to relieve whatever's left in the inflammation in my knee, and that's much better for that than Tylenol is. So you know, I'm, I'm just trying to educate here that when you hear a tagline in a commercial Just remember, it might not be all that it seems. We do have the United States Tag Team Champions up next, Ivan Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev, and they're facing two unknowns. I didn't even bother to look up the names because the match is over with so quickly. It really doesn't matter. But one thing that I do notice, uh, Ivan is wearing his usual singlet, but Crusher in a different outfit was Crusher Khrushchev is Barry Darso, who would be Demolition Smash only a couple of months after this. He's wearing long tights with his singlet, so kind of a Bret Hartish look to him. And that might have something to do with the fact that he had suffered a knee injury earlier in 1986 and had missed some time. Please note, I mentioned with my own knee brace thing how I was feeling like Demolition Smash. Yes, that is where he started wearing the knee brace when he suffered that injury in 86, and you see it for his entire time as a member of Demolition. It kind of made me think, though, did Crusher Khrushchev, Barry Darso, just kind of you know trying to think through how he's approaching his career at this point in 1986, does he jump to the WWF because being smash in demolition or being the second smash in demolition is a better opportunity or is it because he can see the writing on the wall for this russian thing since one of them has turned babyface, you have a different leader in russia i, I don't i don't think russia i don't think barry darso is reading the paper let's just say barry darso does not have a subscription to foreign affairs so I don't think he's following the latest Cold War news with Reagan and Gorbachev all that closely. He's going to the WWF because he can make more money over there than as a secondary tag team guy in the NWA. Tony and David Crockett, they're talking a little bit more about Nikita and Dusty and how that came together. Standing in that arena that night when Nikita Koloff walked in with Dusty Rhodes and everybody is saying, oh, wait a second. They, they thought they thought Nikita was going to jump him. That's right. And then when he went right in after Ole and JJ, the building went just absolutely mad. And look, yeah, and look what they did to JJ. As the story goes, David Crockett was there and had tears in his eyes from emotion and how the crowd was reacting to what was in front of him, which... I'll take a little bit better than Pat Patterson crying over the Ironman match at WrestleMania 12 between Sean and Brett. Yeah, I know it was mostly about smaller dudes main eventing WrestleMania, but I, I don't, I really don't have any need to see that Ironman match ever again. But I'm not gonna make fun of him for crying about it because you know that's that's that that's his business. It's none of mine. So match ends with a clothesline off the top for the win by Ivan Koloff as. 
Crusher is yelling at the camera at Nikita because they, they feel very, very betrayed and they're not hesitant to let you know about it. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. The Dirty Dozen. 1035 Eastern on the Superstation Sunday. A lot of big names in that movie, The Dirty Dozen, from 1967. There was Ernest Borgnine, Lee Marvin, George Kennedy Kennedy, but it's probably most notable for being the first movie that Jim Brown starred in after his career ended in the NFL with the Cleveland Browns. He retired to basically do movies, also because Art Modell was uh, shortchanging him on a future contract, and he was basically like, uh, screw this. I, I, I can't believe Art Modell did something stupid. It's just absolutely unheard of. Luckily, he wouldn't do anything like that ever again, right? So we got Paul Jones and Ravishing Rick Rude. And uh, I'm wondering, where's the Raging Bull Manny Fernandez? He kind of saunters through in the middle of this interview. Now, Paul Jones, you just connect him so much with Jimmy Valiant that, oh, yeah, that's right. He's got other stuff going on as well. He's, he's capable of handling two cases at the same time. But the thing I love about this is that Rick Rude gets so excited, he just completely gets tongue-tied. Who does Jimmy Crockett think he is? The bull in a cage over the ring at Stargate. Sometimes I think your brother, the way he books his matches, is he go out and he asks the fans what they want to see. Well, let me tell you something, Jim Crockett. There ain't no way. The bull may be up in the cage, but the ravishing root will be in that building somewhere. There's no way that I am going to lose my beautiful hair. That's right, Paul. And then I want to tell you and everyone in the free world something. Manny Fernandez might be 30 feet above the ring in a cage, but Ravishing Rick Rude's going to be roaming back in the dressing room. And I want to let you know that on the worst day of my life with a bad knee carrying 100 pounds, I can run a 10-flat 100. Paul Jones, there ain't no way you're going to get your head shaped. And Squahoo McDaniel, you just got a taste of what's coming. Ravishing Rick Rude, Randy Bull. I can't even talk. I'm so excited. Raging Bull, the awesome twosome. He didn't exactly stick the landing on that one, but he recovered well enough. So Rude seems to be alluding to you got the hair match with Jimmy Valiant and Paul Jones. That yeah, Manny Fernandez might be in a cage, but I'm going to be around. So you think that he's going to run interference in that match, maybe cost Valiant. They're going to shave, actually, Big Mama's hair in that one. Since they already did Valiant in the summer. I mean, you, it hadn't grown back long enough to do it again. So, Rick Rude, does he interfere in the match? Or, yes, I actually went back and watched a hair versus hair match, which is like the least shocking thing of all time. Well, Rude, earlier in the night, had his match with Wahoo. So you figure, okay, well, he's uh, he's out of commission. Does Manny Fernandez get out of the cage? Well, he he vows to make a hard time of it for them to get him into the cage. And in fact, it did take some guys coming down, like your, your Sam Houstons and a handful of others, to kind of force him in the correct direction. But Paul Jones loses and loses his hair to Jimmy Valiant. So everybody went home happy in that one. 
Or at least I did, because, you know, when you back out of that step, it just really kind of pisses me off. Up next, we have a six-man match. Tully Blanchard, the television champion, and Arn Anderson and Ole Anderson, the NWA World Tag Team Champions, taking on John Savage, Tony Zane, and Mike, I don't even know what the hell his name is. I wrote it down, and I can't... It looks like Mike Simeon, but I don't... I don't. That does not look like the correct name, and then I don't think I ever referenced him again. I'm generally loath to delve into any sort of controversy, like opinion-based stuff. I hate the Skip Bayless, Stephen A. Smith crap that is sports media these days. It just drives me insane, makes me not want to watch it at all. I can't even watch the news these days because all I get is New Hampshire primary ads and coverage. Thank God that that ended a little bit earlier this week. Although, you know, our nation's politics, well, that, that just goes on. But I am going to say something very controversial here. And I don't know how it's going to go over with my general audience. But you got the original three members of the Four Horsemen who aren't Flair. Tully, Arn, and Ole. A nice six-man unit. But honestly, give me the 1996 Camp Cornette of Owen, Bulldog, and Vader over those three guys every day. Look, I've done 155 of these shows, and I've expressed my admiration for Arn Anderson on numerous occasions. And Tully Blanchard is great in his own right as well. And Ole Anderson, well, he throws a good working punch. But honestly, I would not want to deal with him on a day-to-day basis. And I don't really like watching him at this point in time. I mean, there's a reason why he gets phased out. And it's got nothing to do with his son being in wrestling meets or anything. It's just that he was really very much at the end of the line. Contrast it with Vader in 1996. Yeah, he might be at the end of his useful run, but it was the best he ever was in the WWF. And Bulldog, still very good too. And Owen Hart, certainly one of my favorites as well. If it was 1994 Owen Hart, it would be even better. But it's not like there's much slippage between the 94 model and the 96 model. What I will concede is if you're placing these trios in a Southern Wrestling promotion, yeah, you would want to use Ole Anderson because he's ready-made. He's like a template for that particular style. He actually starts out the match as... The announcers discussed the parking lot attack on Dusty a couple of weeks before this. I mean, they chased him down in a freaking car, and <laughs> like right after Magnum's accident, it just seems incredibly insane to me that you would air that. But also interesting how Tully, in the interview earlier in the show, said, you only aired it because you took our money. It's like... What are, you, what are you, trying to turn the promotion heel? Like the Crockett's are taking your money? Almost like the Four Horsemen are the NWO having to pay for their time on the air. Get a lot of quick tags with the Horsemen. Again, very similar to Owen, Davy Boy, and uh, Vader on last week's show. And Arn eventually gets in. It's just a systematic destruction from that point forward. Tully, I notice, and it's actually pointed out in commentary, he has his leg taped. I don't know if he's nursing some sort of knee injury or a quadricep or whatever the hell it is. There's not a whole lot of tape there. He is distracting the ref so the two Andersons can just wail on the guy or choke him in the corner. Backbreaker by Ole once he gets in. I'm waiting for Arn to hit a spine buster, and it never happens in this match. So that that's kind of a demerit as well. But he, he does that move where he gets behind the guy. I don't know which one it is. And he's like trying to like pull his nose off from behind. 
know, always a very vicious looking maneuver. N- zero offense by these jobbers who I tried to name a little bit earlier. And it is the slingshot suplex that finishes for the horseman until he ends up picking up the pinfall victory. Now, earlier I had talked about how Tony Schiavone was telling us where the upcoming house shows for Jim Crockett Promotions was going to be. And I was very taken by one of them because I didn't know that JCP ever ran this building. It's Championship Wrestling, the Rosemont Horizon, Chicago, Illinois, Sunday, December 14th at 8 o'clock. The NWA comes to Chicago. It's not a surprise that they were running Chicago. It's that when you flip to 1987, they're running there on a monthly basis, but it's at the UIC Pavilion, a smaller venue than the Rosemont Horizon, which I primarily associated with the WWF and assumed that they had it down on lock and that nobody else was going to get in. But JCP ran a show there that looked to have been pretty successful on December 14th, 86, drawing 12,500. It says it's the debut at the venue, and I don't know if they ever made it back there. In fact, it's not too much of a leap to think that the WWF said, all right, we're going to get this exclusive now and lock them out of this building. But here's the card on that night. Tim Horner defeated Shaska Watley. I disagree with that booking. Brad Armstrong fought Jimmy Garvin to a draw. Wahoo McDaniel defeated Rick Rude. Rock and Roll Express defeated Ivan Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev. The Rock and Rolls would actually lose the tag team titles between Starcade and the December... Uh, they would lose it on the December 6th show to Raging and Ravishing of all teams. A very interesting match for David Crockett's commentary where he sounds like every single NFL radio color commentator there is like shouting over everything anyway the rest of the card here road road warriors defeated the midnight express the road warriors co-won a fifty thousand dollar bunkhouse stampede basically everybody else who was on the card was a part of that one and in the main event dusty Rhodes and u.s champion nikita koloff defeated rick flair and tully blanchard so pretty good show i would want to travel back in time to attend that one as well but just very interesting how they managed to get in that building that one time and then never never got back there again are you ready because once you bite into a three musketeers bar there's no turning back you to deliver in chocolate taste with a center ripped like a chocolate cloud and coated in velvet smooth chocolate. Go on, lighten up with three musketeers and let your spirits soar. When it comes to chocolate candy bars, Three Musketeers is okay, but give me something like an O. Henry bar, a Snickers, something with a little bit more of a gimmick to it. If, if there's nuts or something else, like, okay, Three Musketeers is just like a thing of chocolate. It's like, if I were to compare it to wrestling, it's kind of like a dude walking out in the year 1989 with no knee pads and just, you know, trunks and boots, monochrome, that whole deal. It's basically the Ronnie Garvin of chocolate bars, and so it's appropriate that it's <laughs> advertising. I, I bet you David Crockett probably would have done done the account himself. He, he would have personally handled that one. Anyway, we should we get footage of the Midnight Express attacking the Road Warriors again, and it looks like it's going to lead in. It says Louisville Slugger on the screen, and I was like, "Wow, are we going to get a Jim Cornette talk show segment?" 
But then it just abruptly cuts to the midnight match. This is the Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton version, although that would change in about six months' time from this point, and Stan Lane would come in and replace Condry. They are accompanied by Big Bubba Rogers and Jim Cornette, a duo that would have a hilarious moment at Starcade. Less hilarious for Jim Cornette, though, when he falls off the scaffold and Big Bubba fails to make the fair catch, losing him in the lights, <laughs> whatever sports metaphor you want to use for them. But the Midnight Express against the Mulkies. I mean, this is a classic Jim Crockett Promotions matchup. Now, Mulky Mania is not running wild at this point in time, but everybody at this point knows who they were, and they could take an ass-kicking better than anybody else, which is good because the Midnights could dole out an ass-kicking better than anybody else. But interesting start to this match as Bobby Eaton offers a handshake to the Mulky brother who's there, who accepts it, and they just shake hands like a, like it's a Ring of Honor match from 2003. Like, wow. Bobby Eaton, what a, what a nice man. But they immediately go to town, get suplexed by Condry once he gets in. Eaton back in, he, the slam, he tags out. So it's kind of like the Andersons and, and Tully match before. A lot of quick tags. And there's only, at this point, I'm, I'm realizing from the commentary there's only two matches official for starcade and it's less than four weeks away it's the skywalkers match with the midnights and the road warriors and jimmy valiant and paul jones other than that nothing is set not even the world title match i know i mentioned that earlier but it just seems crazy to me that you're building to this however this is not a pay-per-view event which, like I said in the intro, kind of a mistake because I think this would have done pretty well on pay-per-view. Given how the good the video sales went for this, just on like rentals, where you got the guys up on the scaffold on the video box, I think people would have bought this on pay-per-view and you could have gotten to it before Vince would have blocked them out. Although, who knows, maybe the same thing would have happened as when they went to the Rosemont Horizon. The Mulkies are granted one tag, but they are basically just, the beatdown just goes on. And we get a lot, lot of back elbows in pro wrestling. Three years of doing this show has taught me you're going to see a back elbow in pretty much every match, Irish whip back elbow. The other thing that I've noticed is almost all offense from the late 90s was based off Irish whips. Uh, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure why that is. I guess it was just the style at the time, like putting an onion on your belt. Eaton goes up to the top rope, and he actually put the monkey up there and hit a back suplex from there. I guess Bobby might be letting all J- sending messages to all Japan. It's very hard to say. I'm not entirely sure. Bill Bill Mulkey is the one who's outside the ring. He tries to make the save, but he gets caught. And eventually the rocket launcher on both Mulkey brothers ends up picking up the win for the Midnights as Bobby just decides to pin both of them. So a classic Midnights ass-kicking of a team that is classic in its own right at getting their ass kicked. And now for something completely different. This is a little bit different, not because we're hearing from Bobby Jaggers and eventually Dirty Dutch Mantel walks across the Kansas Jayhawks. They're a solid mid-card act. It's just that I wasn't expecting an interview crammed in at this point in the show. And my suspicions were correct because things don't come off the way you probably want it to. You know one thing about the wrestling world judging right now over Dusty Rhodes' decision? 
And like Dusty Rhodes says, every man has a right of mind and a right of speaking his peace. And I'll guarantee you one thing, Dusty, we're behind you 100%. Your decision, you made it, we'll stand behind you. Another thing is, Russians, we're looking for you. Starcade right around the corner. See you next week on The Best Professional Wrestling. Now look, I'm not exactly sick in my balls that Bobby Jaggers got cut off mid-sentence after 20 seconds of kissing the Booker's ass. <laughs> David Crockett just kind of cut again. The way that he did made me laugh. I was really kind of hoping for a classic, Tony, we're out of time. But unfortunately, we did get that. <laughs> David Crockett, what a dictator he is on the production. He was a cruel man, but fair. It's only right that if I go into the segment with the Monty Python thing, I have to play a drop at the end of it as well. So they show a replay clip of Nikita in the cage, kind of roaming around with Dusty after they've cleaned house. So it's not like Bobby Jackers, they completely ran out of time. It's like, oh, sorry, we got to kick you off here so we could show footage of the thing that we showed earlier in the show. Albeit one of the best things that I've ever covered on this program but that is a wrap for world championship wrestling from november 1st 1986 before i get to my usual podcast plugs i do want to give a shout out to the booking the territory podcast which Like this one that I covered, Crockett 1986, they have a ton of shows covering Jim Crockett promotions all through this time period. And I urge you to check that out, mainly because I think they've given me a lot of their audience to me and kind of steered them towards my show. I hope that maybe if you're not listening to their podcast that I could shift you in their direction as well. But uh, I I thank them for any sort of uh, shout out that they have given me in the past or on that on that message board that they have that I don't think I've ever seen, but somebody told me I was mentioned on there once. And I was like, oh, well, that that's nice. I'm, I'm glad that uh, people are enjoying my podcast who are have been doing longer and more successful podcasts than me. So do check that out, Booking the Territory. Now, the Adams Division podcast, a part-time project that I do with my good pal Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters, who... By the way, on his next episode, we'll be having the return of Jeff Perlman, one of my favorite guests. Yeah, you might not agree with his politics or whatever. I don't agree with 100% of what he says. But he he is, as Deval Patrick would say... He is eloquent, and he is thoughtful. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Well, anyway, look for that on the sportscasters. I swear, I must be the only wrestling podcast that plays Deval Patrick drops. Probably because I'm from Massachusetts, and he was a horrible governor for us. Like... Do, do not be fooled by the fact that he's running for president. He's only doing that because that's what people from Massachusetts who reach, you know, elected office strive to do. They never actually become president. They always just run for president like it's a full-time job. Now, for the Adams Division podcast that we have planned, I am going to let you in on what the concept is. If you'll recall, two years ago, it might have been the first Adams Division podcast we did, ranking the first 14 WrestleManias. Well, we're cycling back to that. And what we're doing is taking, we're doing a 10 match card. I'm thinking of it more as a DVD compilation where you're only allowed to pick one match from each WrestleMania. So four of them are going to be left out entirely. You can only choose one world title match, one IC title match, and one tag title match. So that kind of limits options as well. 
and you can't reuse guys, which makes it challenging for which Randy Savage match am I going to pick? Which Hulk Hogan match? Which Bret Hart match? Do I use Bret for the tag title match, or do I use him for the world title match? Or Hogan? Where do, where does it all fit in? It's a very interesting thought exercise, and it took me several hours to come up with where where I wanted to go with it. I had to cross off a bunch of stuff because I kept reusing Randy Savage and just forgetting about stuff so uh be on the lookout for that that'll probably be uh, out i'm gonna say in the next couple of weeks we are actually recording this very soon after this show drops now on the our vantage point podcast Jomana and michael quinn this week on their influencers series they're looking at pay-per-view and its impact on professional wrestling and when i think of early pay-per-view i just think uh, this guy that i go to the bruins games with with, not the tony garia fan but this other guy who claimed to have watched the original wrestlemania on pay-per-view which i think was possible but highly unlikely i mean i think boston might have been a little bit faster to pay-per-view than other areas it's just that uh, there were a lot of closed circuit locations for that back in the day now on the wrestling podcast about nothing with mike crockett and without brian malonis but with brian fury back from the wwe performance center where he was down there for several weeks i believe on a teaching mission they welcome in justin mcisaac one of brian fury's oldest and dearest friends who used to be a wrestler but became a broadcaster instead. That's a pretty neat trick. Up in the state of New Hampshire, I'm pretty sure he's probably sick of the New Hampshire primary stuff and is glad that it's over at this point. I noticed that Crockett on the Twitter has been doing some teases for things that are going to be coming along. They're nearing their 200th episode, so you should stay tuned to the wrestling podcast about nothing because I think big things are ahead for them there. Now, before I get into what I'm doing for next week's show and the week after, yes, I'm actually putting it out, it's time for the return of YouTube Comment Theater. These are, as always, actual YouTube comments left on this video on YouTube, which only has 11,000 views. I think in two years, you'd think that it would be a little bit higher than that. One, The thing that I love about YouTube Comment Theater is when I go through these, occasionally I will learn something. We'll start out with one of those from Donnie Brook, pro wrestler, who says, Saturday morning TV spot. And yes, I was very confused as to when this aired. This is not the 605 show. This is the one that aired in the morning on Saturday, which is why they're promoting a football game at 1235. So now it makes perfect sense to me. Donnie Brook, very good name for a professional wrestler. When I was making pasta the other day, I thought, has there ever been a jobber named El Dente? Where, like, he's completely done after nine minutes in every single match. E-Man FXW says, Nikita's babyface turn was one of the biggest moments ever. Tony Schiavone and his podcast talked about Crockett being in or nearly being in tears over the emotion in the arena that night when this all happened. Yeah, that must have planted my, itself into my brain because I brought that up a little bit earlier in the show. David Fulham says, thermonuclear. That's all he says, just remarking on the pop for Nikita Koloff. Randall Guzik says, greatest face turn in the history of pro wrestling, not sports entertainment. 
And yeah, I, I probably don't have enough to do a best of the face turns <laughs> show at some point, like I did best of the heel turns twice. The heel turns tend to be more memorable over time. I really, I don't know why I didn't just sit down and think, okay, well, what were the greatest face turns in history? Randy Savage at WrestleMania 7 would be one, although it's kind of weird how he didn't really turn face as an announcer right away. He was still kind of the heel announcer. Anti-SJW says, oh, there's, there's where Parv went. Nice wig, Jimmy Garvin, LOL. That is not a wig. I can assure you that that is Jimmy Garvin's actual hair. Terry Scott, going against the grain here, says, big mistake turning Nikita into a baby face. Well, what the hell else were you going to do? I kind of went through that. I mean, you had to pluck somebody from the heel side and make them a baby face. Or raid the WWF, and that probably wasn't happening at that point in time. Dewey Cuffley makes a very good point here. Did anyone understand how the NWA could not approve the first blood match with Dusty and Tully, but was a go for the scaffold match with the Rogue Warriors and the Midnight Express? Yeah, that's kind of the cousin of what I was saying earlier, where it's like every match had a bleeder at Starcade 83 and 85. I don't remember 84 as well, but... Just really, really strange. <laughs> Johnny X, one of the replies, says, A first blood match with Dusty Rhodes would be over before it started. <laughs> Some of the grooves in his forehead. And finally, Scott, no last name, just Scott, says, The commentators are so disrespectful to the wrestlers in the ring. Continually talking about other wrestlers in other matches rather than the one going on in the ring. That's pretty much how wrestling commentary has always been, especially if there's a lower mid-card guy in the ring who doesn't really have a whole lot going on. You're going to use that time to talk about other stuff. And if you're annoyed by a Tony Schiavone program doing that in 1986, oh, just you wait until like 1998-99 and you're not even going to be able to stand it. That'll do it for YouTube Comment Theater. I mentioned that I'm actually planning out the shows again. I got the next two all lined up, and I'll tell you right now what those are. Next week, for episode 156, which I guess would be the third year anniversary official of this program. I think the first show dropped on February 17th or something. I'd have to look it up. It's all in iTunes. I mean, it's all I know is that SoundCloud will probably ding my credit card the next couple of days, and I don't think I'm going to change servers or anything. So next week, Memphis wrestling from april 28th 1984 it's got randy savage in it so i don't think i'm gonna be able to go wrong with that and yeah i know i did another memphis show from 84 that also had randy savage but honestly i just can't get enough of him in my life or at least my podcasting life and the week after that for 157 be doing wwf superstars from february 29th 1992 yes i have to do the leap day show on the week of the leap day now aew is doing a pay-per-view on the 29th and wwe has never run a pay-per-view on february 29th however super brawl 2 was run by wcw i've actually been watching that this week i'm up to the rude steamboat match and yeah, I've had a lot more time to actually watch wrestling this week, which is 
been very nice. So be on the lookout for those two shows in the next couple of weeks. But while you wait for that to come out, and you know, it, you're probably listening to some of the back catalog that I have now, over 150 shows now, plus the Adams Division podcast and other specials. Leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever reviews are accepted <laughs> happily by others in some way. <laughs> it, it provides what is known as social proof that you're listening to and enjoying this particular podcast. That is about professional wrestling, I can assure you, despite the Deval Patrick drops. I spent five minutes trying to look for another Deval Patrick drop so I could use two of them, but I could not find the one where he says, come ride with us sometime, when he had the controversy buying a Cadillac as the governor's car when there was nothing wrong with the previous car, but... Anyway, enough Deval Patrick bashing. I, I don't want to turn this into like whenever I talk about Woodrow Wilson and I just go in on that guy as being one of the worst presidents, like just go on and on. So maybe I should just wrap this up for this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. Rick Rude, Randy Bull. I can't even talk. I'm so excited, Raging Bull. <laughs>